Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Duvini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it will be perhaps a bit entertaining as we go. Um, We are still in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to talk today about one of the most difficult parables that Jesus ever taught. And the reason it's so difficult, I mean, all the parables can be challenging. Some of them are really straightforward. Others um, others are, are a bit more difficult to understand. Um, and it's, the case, it's always the case in, in just about every parable that um, a little bit of digging, a little bit of research into the cultural background and the historical background will will unveil some new layers of meaning in those parables. But in most cases, I don't think it um, it radically changes the, the general interpretation of it. But this parable is different. In this parable, understanding some of what's going on and understanding perhaps how Jesus' first listeners would have heard it um, can can really transform the way you read it. And there are other stories as well where that's true, and we just haven't had the time to, to deal with them. They're not all parables, but you have like the the story of the, the Syrophoenician woman who uh, asked Jesus to heal her, and he, he makes a comment about he's come for the lost children of Israel. He makes a comment about how he can't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. And she responds with, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And, and he commends her for her faith. And some people don't like that, but there's a really deep, beautiful meaning in there um, that's totally contingent, really, on understanding the culture and the history behind that interaction. But uh, And I'll be honest, I, I feel like I might have talked about that in one of the previous podcasts, but at this point, it's all a blur. So I don't know, but I don't have time to do it today because I really do want to dive into the parable in Luke chapter 16, which in most Bibles is subtitled, The Parable of the Dishonest Manager. So I'm going to read to you this parable. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him in and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. <laughs> what a weird parable, right? I mean, it, it seems totally out of character for Jesus. Let's go over this a little bit. Now, the first thing that I think we, we need to understand when we hear this parable is that um, the majority of the people who, who listened to Jesus, including his disciples, with, with the one exception of Matthew the tax collector, or the former tax collector, all of his disciples are part of the peasantry. There is no middle class in, in their day and age, not really. There are the wealthy and there are the peasants, and the peasants are by and large quite heavily oppressed. They're exploited. They have very little legal recourse to fight back against the wealthy. Um, and so one of the first things you've got to understand is that Jesus' listeners would have seen this dishonest manager's actions in much the same way that you or I um, understand the, the tale of Robin Hood. Okay. He's, he's doing something good for the poor at the expense of the rich. So that's the first key. Okay. That, that, um, that here's a man who the oppressed peasants who Jesus is talking to in the first century would have automatically been inclined to like. Because they would have seen him as doing something... Um, Noble, really. Now, here's the other way we need to approach this. The, the rich man in the parable represents God. Okay? Now, God is a God of justice and mercy and great personal integrity. Evidently, the rich man is as well. And so... He is going to fire this manager. He says he can no longer be manager. But the thing that we miss in that little brief statement where he just says you can no longer be manager is the incredible mercy of the rich man. The implication of this story is that his manager, who is the person responsible for running his estate, this is... You know, he, a rich man in Jesus' day and age means a man who owns a lot of land that produces uh, grain, wine, olives, whatever. It's some kind of agricultural estate. And so he's got this man who's running that estate for him. Now, if he's been dishonest, that means he's been skimming off the top, he's been stealing, he's been doing something that has been um, effectively stealing from the rich man. Now... What would normally happen in that kind of a situation is not that the rich man would just tell his manager, okay, you're fired, you can't work for me anymore. What would normally happen is that manager and his entire family 
would be thrown into prison, if not outright executed. The death penalty is very much in play for this kind of crime. Not Again, not just for the man, but uh, for the whole family of, of that man. So right off the bat, we have this wealthy man who is incredibly merciful to this dishonest manager who's been cheating him. Now, this dishonest manager has a, a severe problem because he's been fired for cheating. No doubt by the, the word will spread and every other estate in the area will know that he's not trustworthy. He won't be able to find a job. So what's he going to do? We tend to assume that he's somehow like skimming off the top of these deals he makes with his master's debtors, but that's not what's going on. No, no, no. He's running around. Bear in mind, you know, in this day and age, um, you know, there is no internet, there is no phone service. At this point, this manager and his boss are the only two people who know that he is no longer the manager of his master's estate. No one else has heard it yet. So he goes out and he calls in all these debtors working on his limited time while he, while he is presumably preparing the books to go back to his boss. And he alters all the numbers of what people owe. He's forgiving their debts. And so they all think, all these people will assume that he is acting on behalf of his master. And they're going to be out in the streets praising the name of this of this rich man who has been lowering their debts. What a kind and generous man. So this this manager now walks back into his master's office, drops these books down on the table probably with a pretty smug grin on his face. And he's painted his master into a corner. Now his master could if he wanted to punish this man. Of course, that might cause him some problems in the community because now this man's, now the master is kind of a folk hero because he's the one forgiving all the debts. Or he can say to the manager, well played. Now we're, now we're left at this point. A lot of the parables, you notice, don't actually have an ending. You're left to wonder what happens next. This is one of those. It doesn't have an ending. But let's talk for a minute about what this dishonest manager is commended for. He's not commended for his ethics. He's not commended for his cheating. He's commended for recognizing something that is inherently true about his master, which is that his master is profoundly merciful and gracious and kind. He recognizes this as an essential characteristic of his master. This entire gamble he makes here 
is based on the fact that he believes he's certain his master is a kind and merciful man. Now, he takes advantage of it. And, it, and Jesus is really clear to call him a son of this world or a son of this age, which is a term he uses to denote people who are, are not righteous, who are, who are living wickedly. He's really clear about that. And so the juxtaposition that Jesus sets up at the end is, look, here's, here's this wicked person who is still capable of recognizing the incredible depth of mercy and grace being offered to him. And if only my own disciples would see the same thing. So you have a lot going on here. You have a clear statement on the nature of God, the God of justice and mercy. You have the exposure of sin. The idea that the coming of the kingdom of God brings a crisis moment. The steward's sins are exposed. And you also have a, a statement a bit on the, the sort of insidious nature of sin. Because once he's caught, um, the steward should have repented. Right? He should have realized the error of his ways and, and made efforts to change and try to make amends. But he doesn't do that. Actually, he does the exact opposite. He gets bolder and more aggressive in his sin. Sin breeds more and greater sin. There's a bit of an irony here in that he recognizes that mercy and generosity are at the core of his master's being and decides rather than responding to that generosity and mercy appropriately and repenting and making amends and trying to get back into his master's good graces, he takes advantage of it. He does something worse, more evil, more extravagantly evil. He continues to steal. He continues to cheat and to lie and to manipulate. Because he knows that his master is a man of incredible generosity and mercy. So again, this steward is not commended uh, for the way he behaves. He's not commended for what he actually does. He's only commended for his accurate perception of the character and nature of his master.
And of course, the better response would have been for him to repent and to change his ways. But this is a crucial moment. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, the kingdom of God brings a crisis for everyone who enters into it because your sins are exposed. And you then have a choice. Your sins are exposed, but in that moment, God offers incredible generosity and mercy. God does not immediately offer condemnation and punishment. And we then have a choice. What we should do is reject our sin. Repent. And repentance, we, we use this word, and, and sometimes it gets a bad rap, and people don't like to hear it, and it sounds too Baptist or too Pentecostal or too judgmental. Um, repentance is not just saying that you are, it's not like an apology, okay? It isn't just an admission of sorrow or an admission of guilt. Repentance is a turning away from your sins. And what is heavily implied in that is that repentance is not just giving something up, but also um, a desire to make amends for what you have done. It reminds me in, the, in that sense of part of the program, uh, part of the 12-step programs for addicts is that they have to make amends, right? They have to... Um, they're, they're supposed to go to all the people who they, in in the midst of their addiction, have hurt or harmed, um, and and at least attempt to make amends, to apologize, to own up to what they've done, and to ask what they can do to make it better. Um, and it's it's understood that this is part of the healing process. And I think that's a phenomenal real-world example of what repentance is meant to look like. It's not just turning away from your sin. It's not just renouncing your sin. It is actually recognizing the harm that, that your sin has caused and, and beginning to think about what you can do to make amends. That's what the steward should have done. But he does the exact opposite. Once he perceives the generous and merciful nature of his master, he decides to take advantage of it. We might, in the modern church, call this cheap grace. The idea that well, God loves us all. God is generous and merciful and forgiving. So what does it really matter if we step off the path from time to time? What does it really matter if we don't always follow the biblical instructions on how to live? 
But this comes back to that problem that sin begets more and bigger sins. This is ultimately the problem. We, we can say, and I think we can rightly say, that all of us will probably go to our graves with some sin for which we have not repented, some sin to which we maybe even are blind. And, and for this reason, I always will, will hesitate to say that, oh, people who are doing XYZ are automatically condemned to hell. I mean, it, it doesn't work like that. I'm sure that there are sins to which I am blind. I'm sure that I will die having not repented for some sins in my life. But there is a difference between being unaware of a sin you've committed and knowingly committing sins and then not repenting for them. Between doing things which you know to be morally wrong as defined by Scripture, uh, which is our moral guide. It is our highest moral authority. Uh, and, and then choosing to, to act as if you will just cast yourself on the mercy of God. Because the problem is, once you begin adopting that mindset, it's a slippery slope. And I remember when I was a philosophy student, um, we were told, you know, the slippery slope argument is a logical fallacy, right? It, it isn't logical to conclude that because you do X, you're then more likely to do Y, and then you're more likely to do Z, and, and things will snowball out of control. But, you know, the problem with logical fallacies is that people are not logical. So the slippery slope argument may indeed be a logical fallacy, but it plays out in reality time and time and time again. It plays out in individual lives and in society as a whole time and time again because people are not logical. And so slippery slopes do, in fact, happen all the time. Allowing yourself to slip into this idea of, of cheap grace, of, of casting yourself, just taking advantage of the generosity and mercy of God is going to lead to more and more bigger and bigger sins. All the while pushing you farther and farther and farther away from the God whose generosity and mercy you are in fact depending on. It's a dangerous game to play. This, this is why uh, the church historically has been so insistent on, on calling people to repentance. Calling people to recognize sin and to avoid it. It's also why it matters so much that we are delivered from the power of sin in our lives. This is a crucial part of Wesleyan theology, that, that actually even before we individually acknowledge Christ, God's preventing grace is already at work in us to lessen the effect of original sin, to give us some ability to recognize our own sinfulness and to begin to move away from it. And that then... After we are justified before God, our, his, his sanctifying grace works in us to not just 
help us avoid sin, but to break the power that sin has over us so that we can live in the fullness of his goodness and grace. It doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. It doesn't mean that like the Holy Spirit does all the work for us. To, to quote one of my old professors, uh, Dr. Billy Abraham, the Holy Spirit is not a labor-saving device. You still have to do the work. But you will be assisted. You will be guided. We recognize the incredible grace and mercy of God. And we are called then to respond. Not in the way that this dishonest manager responds in, in the parable, but the exact opposite. When we recognize the generosity and grace of God, we respond with joy, with repentance, with gratitude. Cheerfully casting off our old ways of life and embracing God's ways. That's all for today. We're going to continue. We're going to have one more week in Luke, and then we'll be into the Gospel of John for the rest of the season of Lent. Until next week, folks, God bless.